the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we're on chapter five. We made it through another chapter of... uh, That means we only have how many left? Only 23... Okay, so we've got a few chapters left, not to worry. Okay, let's, uh, let's read part of Matthew chapter 5. When Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way... They persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a pretty familiar territory for some of us, but it's the first time in the book of Matthew that we hear the words of Yeshua directly from Yeshua. And uh, in fact, the first words that Matthew, re- the first word that Matthew records is "blessed." Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, so he starts with an ashray, and. Uh, that's familiar to us if we're used to doing the uh, prayers out of the prayer book because there are numbers of the psalms and numbers of the prayers that begin with Ashrei. Now, once again, we, uh, we have this tangled web of the synoptic gospels. Where exactly does this fit? How many of you have been on the mountain where they, or the slope where they say this occurred, the traditional slope? Yeah? Uh, I don't think that's maybe where it occurred. I don't know exactly, but we'll see. So, actually, verses 1 and 2 of our chapter fit more closely with the previous context. But they do help introduce the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Mark has no parallel to this pericope, but Luke does. Thus, this represents some reliance on common material used by Matthew and Luke, but not by Mark. You understand what I mean by that? I mean, here, Mark and Luke, I mean, Matthew and Luke seem to have some of the same, they're saying some of the same things, not exactly... Not exact. Luke is much shorter than Matthew. But it's obvious that they have verbal parallels to the point where they must have used a common source. But Mark doesn't have this. So they didn't copy Mark. So so what common source did they use? You you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so that's what the scholars call Q. Some, Some source that is unknown to us that apparently circulated early that the gospel writers used to one extent or another, because when you have verbal agreement between two authors that didn't, didn't know each other, um, you have to think that they must have had a common source. The question is, uh, what do we do with the uh, uh, accusation by some that the apostolic scriptures can't be trusted or relied upon as inspired because of these kinds of differences? Well, we can show the same differences in the Tanakh. Which one are you going to take, Kings or Chronicles? They don't match up. Uh, even even in some cases, the uh, there are certain things in the Torah that are said in Leviticus which seem to be counter countered by a slightly different verbiage in Deuteronomy and so forth and so on. So my first response is just because we have what appear to be differences doesn't mean that it's that it's not inspired. And in fact, the rabbis go to great lengths uh, in in the Midrashim to show that what appear to be conflicts are in fact not conflicts at all. They do this apparent, they do this also uh, amongst the sages. If, if an early sage, one of the Amarim, is, seems to be contradicted by a later sage, one of the Tanaitic sages, that can't be, okay? I mean, that's not allowed. <laughs> so they go to great lengths to show how really they're not contradicting, they're really talking about two different things, or, you know. So I think the same thing should be, uh, the, the same privilege should be offered to the apostolic scriptures as well. And, and I talk about that a bit here. We, we, I, don't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, discussing this, but 
I know it becomes an issue, and it will continue to be an issue as we go through the book of Matthew, that there are things that don't seem to match up between Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, and sometimes John. And so how do we resolve those? And I think there are some answers that we can give that, that help us. All right. In Luke's account, Yeshua has ascended a mountain and prayed through the night. In the morning, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designates as his apostles, Ishlachim, those sent ones. After choosing the 12, he comes down from the mountain with, with the 12 to a level place. And thus, Luke's account is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount, where a large crowd of his disciples were gathered, as well as a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, according to Luke. They had come to hear him teach and to be healed from their diseases and set free from unclean spirits. That's the picture that Luke gives. Matthew's story is a bit different. Yeshua has chosen only four of his disciples by this time, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, when he delivers his Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing said about us having chosen all 12 of his disciples after praying through the night. And Matthew has Yeshua, Yeshua ascending the mountain, while Luke has him descending to a level place where the crowds await him. And by the way, Matthew doesn't choose the rest of his disciples until chapter 10 in his gospel. So, as a result, early in the history of interpretation of Matthew's gospel, Augustine has suggested that Matthew and Luke were describing two different events in which Yeshua's discourses were similar but distinct. Is that possible? Yes, that is possible. This view was almost universally held up to the Reformation period when Calvin defended the view that the two accounts presented the same discourse and the majority of teachers and commentators followed his lead and, and still do in our day, except for the, the, the more liberal. I have to be careful with that, I guess, because even some conservative commentators would take this view, would say that in the course of the development of the Gospels, there has been a mixing up of stories. I, I'm, not, I'm, I, that, I'm not comfortable with that. So uh, I, think we, I think we don't give enough credence to the fact, however, that Yeshua was an itinerant preacher. He walked all over the countryside t- teaching and preaching. And any of us who have done any amount of teaching know that we use the same illustrations, we use the same stories, we use the same kinds of things from one place to another, and they're not necessarily always exactly the same. They're the same text, the same general outline, even some of the same illustrations we use, but we may emphasize one thing is over another at one point, or in one place or another place. Okay, so... The similarities between the accounts of Matthew and Luke are obvious. They both began the sermon with Beatitudes, meaning blessed, okay? And end with the same simile, that is, the current persecution of Yeshua's followers parallels the historical persecution of Israel's prophets. So both, even though they're not exactly the same, and, you know, if you want to, you can put your thumb in Matthew and put and open up to Luke and kind of flip back and forth to see. Uh, Luke's account is very, very much shorter. It's in Luke 6. But the beginning and the end are pretty much the same. Uh, almost everything in Luke's sermon on the plain is contained in Matthew's account. So Matthew is the larger of the two. Uh, both accounts of the sermon are followed by similar events. That is, Yeshua goes into Capernaum and he heals the centurion's servant. So it looks like Luke and Matthew are telling the same story. And uh, so how do we account for the differences? Luke's account is much shorter, as I said, and the material he, he, he does not include is scattered throughout the remainder of his gospel. As noted, Matthew speaks of a mountain while Luke's setting is that of a plain. Moreover, Luke's discourse follows the choosing of the twelve, which does not take place in Matthew until chapter 10. It would seem that the material Matthew includes, which Luke leaves out or discusses elsewhere in his gospel, may have been more germane to a Jewish audience, and thus its inclusion in Matthew's account. You know, if, if, you, if you look... At, under the general heading of persecution, of mourning, and those kinds of things in the Tanakh, you'll see that it's, it's a fairly common theme. Israel, because of her disobedience, has been exiled. And as a result, she's under um, uh, persecution. And as a result, she's mourning. You know, she's hanging her harps on the willows uh, as she crosses the river. She's, uh, she's crying out, how long will we, you know, you just have this theme all... So it, 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 it isn't unlikely that Matthew... Uh, included the words of Yeshua that have to do with this persecution and mourning in a greater extent than what Luke would have done for his uh, more Gentile readers. It is also very possible that Yeshua gave the same sermon more than once, as is often the case with itinerant preachers, and that Luke's account, while describing the same event, 
is more selective of the same themes and teaching points that may have been emphasized in other sermons or other settings of the same sermon. My point there is this. If you hear somebody, if you hear a teacher give the same sermon or lecture three or four times, and then three, say two or three years later, you are asked to recount. Well, you may, you may use an illustration from one event that actually occurred at the other event. It's the same sermon. It's the same message. It's the same essential things. But you may, you may uh, make an amalgamation of the times that you heard that particular sermon. And so we have to believe that Luke received his understanding of this sermon through sources. He wasn't there. So the sources may have conflated the times that Yeshua spoke this same message. And it, it is so, uh, so, I don't want to say cryptic, it's so much like wisdom <clears throat> literature. In fact, when you read Proverbs, you read, blessed is the man who does this, blessed is so forth and so on. It's so much like the Proverbs that you could see that these would have been sayings that would have readily stayed in the minds and hearts of people and would have been repeated time and time again. Likewise, Matthew's mountain language does not entirely exclude Luke's notice of a plain. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeshua could have come to a hilly or mountainous region, gone up to a higher point with his disciples, and then come down to a more level plateau where the crowds had gathered. The order of events, that is Matthew before choosing of the twelve, Luke afterwards, is not conclusive in determining whether Matthew and Luke are describing the same event here, because strict chronology in Matthew's retelling of the story is not always something to which he adheres. Just like the Tanakh. Sometimes things are, are put more thematically than they are chronological. Now, Luke tends to be more chronological. He tends to say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in order. But we, we don't know that at times Matthew may move things a little bit in order to keep a theme going. For instance, why is it not until chapter 5 that we first hear the words from Yeshua? We don't hear any words from him at his baptism. We don't, you mean he didn't talk? Of course he did. In fact, John, I mean, uh, Matthew gives us the notice that Yeshua was going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But Matthew does not tell us any, give us any words directly from him until we come to this chapter. Why? He has a purpose for that. He has a thematic purpose for that. We'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, yeah. Um, we hear those words, but it, it, he's not, we don't hear him talking directly to us. That's what I'm saying. The first time we hear him teaching directly to us is in this, is in this chapter. But I don't think this was the first time he ever taught. That's my point. So uh, uh, Matthew is doing uh, is 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 careful to uh, maintain certain themes, and uh, he may he may give that priority over strict chronology. All right. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses contained in the Gospel of Matthew. Some have suggested that Matthew chose these five discourses to parallel the five books of Moses. It, it, I don't find any good. I mean, it would really be neat if each of these in order, matched Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they don't. But it is interesting that he weaves his gospel around five major discourses, and he kind of starts each discourse the same way and ends it the same way, at least in, in, in uh, some similarities. So we have the Sermon on the Mount. We have his, his uh, sending the uh, disciples out on their mission and the whole uh, idea of uh, giving up one's life. Uh, parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, and then the uh, discourse about kingdom authority and uh, binding on earth and, and bound, what's bound on earth will be bound in heaven and so forth. And then we have the so-called Olivet Discourse where the victory of the kingdom of heaven is, uh, is, is talked about and the, the, prophetically the coming of the kingdom is, is uh, made sure. So in, in kind of a, this is the skeleton around which Matthew weaves his, his gospel. Okay, so our, our opening verse says, When Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. These are the crowds that were mentioned earlier in chapter 4. It indicates that the master's popularity had grown. The people were seeking him for his teaching and his power to heal and overcome demonic powers. The common posture of a teacher in the synagogue community was that of sitting. And thus Yeshua assumes this position as the teacher to whom the masses had come. In fact, it, it, uh, students would oftentimes stand, older students would stand, and the teacher would, would sit. This changed, actually. After, uh, after the death of Gamliel, according to the Talmud, uh, students began to sit rather than stand. And 
I think the, the sages saw this as a, as a lowering of respect. There, was a, there wasn't the same respect for teachers after the destruction of the temple that there was before. Of course, the, you know, the rabbis take an opposite view of, a total opposite view of uh, evolution. Evolution has as its primary point, uh, as time goes along, you get better and better and better. You start out with, a, you know, this massive, uh, this glob of whatever, and it becomes more and more uh, organized. It becomes more and more intelligent, right? You start out with unintelligent life, and you eventually get intelligent life, and you get more and more and more intelligent as you go. It's just no wonder that, peop- that people adhere to the, uh, this whole idea of evolution think that their parents and their grandparents, what do they have to tell me? I'm the, I'm the new generation that has better than the former generation. We've evolved into, into more technology. We've, the rabbis say just the opposite. The further you get away from the garden, the dumber you get. Each generation loses rather than gains because they're further away from the, uh, from the source. And so uh, it's not uncommon to, to see in the rabbinic literature that uh, when the temple went away, knowledge was dispersed. And it was harder and harder to know. And as each generation, and this is why there's such an emphasis upon going back to the earlier, to, to Moshe and to the sages and so forth, and to learn the wisdom that they have, because uh, without them we would be lost, is the way uh, a rabbinic view would take it. So, <clears throat> he said, we need not necessarily understand the term disciple to be speaking particularly of the twelve, since Matthew does not have the choosing of the twelve until later. Disciple here may at times denote those who simply were following Yeshua and accepting his teaching. In this case, disciple may be a subgroup of the larger crowds. So, when he says he called his disciples to him, it may have been those who were particularly uh, those who had committed themselves to him. But, not, but it, at this point... In Matthew, at least, it's not the twelve. It's four of the twelve, but others as well. It may be that many were coming to hear his teaching and and see his miraculous works, but some of them were genuinely his disciples. These are the ones who gather around him as he sits to teach. The notice that he went up on the mountain may be variously understood. The Greek term could just as well mean the mountainous region. You see, the Greek has has the article. He went up on the mountain. And some commentators say he went up on Mount Sinai. Now, come on. Uh, others say that he went up on a mountain that was well known in the region. But the same phrase could be used of a mountainous region. In other words, he went up upon the mountain, you know, the mountains near, uh, near the Galilee, and that's probably what is, what is meant. He retreated to the hill country west of the Canaret. Moreover, the term Luke utilizes level place is only found here in Luke and should not be understood as akin to the American prairie, but as a flat place among rough, rocky, or hilly terrain. The picture that emerges is one of Yeshua entering the hill country, then finding a le- uh, and going up on a mountain to pray, whatever. He did that. That was not uncommon. And then as the crowds gathered, he came back to a place that would accommodate them. So, I mean, Matthew has, his ascent, has him ascending. Luke has him descending. Okay, both are true. He went up, then he came back down to a level place where the crowds could sit and listen to his teaching. Many commentators have noted the parallel to Moses in the phrase, he went up on the mountain. For instance, Alice and Davies, in, in their commentary, collate similar phrases in the Tanakh. And note that the majority of these are found in the Torah and with direct reference to Moshe. Generally, those who emphasize the parallel to Moses do so in order to suggest that Matthew is presenting Yeshua as the new Moses, who comes with a new law, to replace the Mosaic legislation. Of course, this viewpoint is based upon a similar interpretation of the sermon itself. If you understand the sermon, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and it says, you have heard it said, this is what Moses said, but I tell you, and you interpret that to mean Moses is passé and my teaching now replaces his, then if you step back and look at the whole thing, you say, oh, well, that, that's obvious. Yeshua is acting out Mount Sinai again. He goes up on the mountain. And he teaches, what the, teaches the people what they're supposed to do. Just like Moses went up on the mountain and he came back down and said, this is what God wants you to do. But you, uh, obviously, that's not what he's doing. Because right in the middle of it, he says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, the Torah and the prophets. So it's very difficult for uh, commentators to accommodate that in their view. And you will discover this all the way through uh, current commentaries on, on Matthew. And that is that the Christian view is that Yeshua is the new Moses, and he brings a new law, and in doing so, he displaces the old Moses and replaces the old law. I mean, that's very, very common 
in terms of, of how Matthew is understood. However, had Matthew intended for us to see a parallel between Yeshua's ascending the hill country and Moses' ascent to the top of Mount Sinai, it seems that he would have made more explicit allusions to the Sinai pericope. In fact, there are none. Rather, if there is a parallel to Moses, it is that Yeshua intends to bring the people to a correct understanding of the Torah and its proper application in light of the kingdom of heaven, not to replace it with something new. I, I, I like the idea that he's, that he's mimicking Moses. But if he's doing that, he's saying, hey, folks, you remember this guy named Moses? Remember how he went up on a mountain? Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what you should do in relationship to it. No, I don't know how anyone can study the Gospels and say that Yeshua was not in every way a Torah-observant Jew who, inte- who wanted his disciples to be Torah-observant. Almost every Jewish person that I've ever talked to who did, did, wasn't raised in, in uh, Christianity or whatever came out of the uh, uh, traditional synagogue and then later in, in his life began to read the Bible. I mean, every one of them. I was talking to one on the phone just a couple of weeks ago. And he just called me up out of the blue, got my number off the website and said, uh, got to talk to you. You know, I'm uh, I'm a doctor. He said, raised Orthodox. And just last year, I came, I came to faith in, in Jesus. I said, wow, that's great. He said, and, and he said, I, then I found out there's there's Messianic synagogues. He said, I'm just I'm just I'm just beside myself. This is great. So I began to talk to him. And I said, uh, so tell me, explain to me, you know, give me the joy of hearing your, your experience. And he said, I just, I started reading the New Testament because I'd never read it before. And I started with Matthew. And he said, it was the most Jewish book I ever read. He said, I was always told that Jesus hated the law and hated the Jews. And he said, everywhere, it's, he sounds like one of the rabbis. So it, it's, it's, just the, it's just the people who, who are coming to Matthew from a non-rabbinic perspective that read it with these jaundiced eyes as being against the Torah. It, it, and I've heard, that, I've heard that not only from this fellow, but from numbers of other. I mean, even uh, Dr. Fluser said that he, the first time he read the Gospels, he said it was, it was just Jewish through and through. And so uh, I, I, think, I think we need commentaries on all the books of the Bible written from, uh, I mean, on, on the, particularly the apostolic writings. We need, on every book in the apostolic writings, we need a solid commentary written from a messianic or from, you know, from a messianic perspective, looking at it from first century Judaism as best we know. So, I don't think he went up on the mountain as a, as, as a replacement for Moses. If anything, he went up on the mountain to lead us back to understanding Moses as he was supposed to be understood. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, To open one's mouth is a Hebraic way of noting a solemn discourse or a proclamation particularly germane to the events at hand. Only Matthew retains this Semitic expression. The other gospel writers don't. It's it's the Hebrew way of saying he started teaching. The opening of the sermon has become known as the Beatitudes based upon the repeated word blessed, makarios in uh, the Greek, which reflects the Hebrew ashrei. This mode of speech is repeatedly found in the Psalms and Proverbs and is common in the rabbinic literature as well. We'll talk about what that means here when we get to the verse itself. It is instructive to note how Matthew has structured his gospel up to this point. Before Yeshua ever teaches or gives his commands, he is known to the reader as the one who fulfills prophecy, as the son of David and the son of God. And through the words of Yochanan Hamakbil, John the Baptist, as the promised Messiah who would, quote, baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is presented as the Son of God and lauded as the one in whom the Father is pleased. It is only after we are well aware of the status of Yeshua of Nazareth that we then hear his own words speaking to us. This accords with the rabbinic teaching that one must acknowledge the sovereignty of God before one is able to submit to his commandments. Why in the world would you listen to his words here on the Sermon on the Mount unless you had some already you already had understood who he was the rabbis uh, in one case he says uh, rabbi yehoshua ben choras uh, why does the passage of shema precede the reciting okay let me explain this because i've just broken into a context this is in this is in brachot and brachot is dealing with what orders in this case what order do we say the prayers in when we get together in synagogue 
Which one do we start with? What goes next? What goes next? What goes next? And then, of course, the question is, why? Who put them in this order? And so the question is, why do we say the Shema before we say the passage that says, and it will come to pass if you hearken to these commandments? And the answer is given so that one may first accept upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven and afterwards may accept the yoke of the commandments. In other words, when you say, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is the only one. We are confessing that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. Once we have confessed that to be true, now we're ready to hear, and, if, and it will come to pass if you hearken to my commandments. When you've committed yourself to him as God, then you're ready to hear his commandments and do them. The same thing is true, I think, which is why Matthew puts the direct teaching of Yeshua to us off until this point. He has carefully shown us his pedigree. He's carefully shown us how he fulfills prophecy. He's carefully shown us the very words of the Father as related to this one when he comes up out of the water of his, of his mikveh. So now we know who this is. This is our master. This is our teacher. This is Rabbeinu, our rabbi. This is who it is. Now... We're very intent, uh, intent upon hearing his each and every word. What does it mean? What is it? How are we to follow it? And, uh, the, you know, the Beatitudes are sobering. Well, at the same time, they are wonderful, but they're sobering. He doesn't start out by telling us which order to put the prayers in. He doesn't start out by, get, by enumerating the laws of purities. He doesn't start out by explaining to us the 39 midot of, of the Sabbath. These were the things that captured the activity and the mind of most of the rabbis of his time. If we take the Mishnah, for instance, as an example, over 60% of the laws uh, uh, laid out in the Mishnah pertain to Sabbath impurities. This is where they were spending all of their energy and time, not all, but a good deal of it. He doesn't even mention it here. Well, only slightly, which tells us what, what, what his teaching, what direction his teaching was taking. He was speaking to the heart. First and foremost. And, and he wasn't alone in that. There were other sages who agreed that one's heart was uh, the, the all-important uh, reality from which all of these other mitzvot would flow. Thus, Matthew follows the same pattern. Before Yeshua utters a word of direct teaching to us or begins his teaching, we have come to understand who he is and having accepted him as the Messiah, are enabled to hear and submit to his words. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. Many have sought to find a literary structure for the Beatitudes, but there is no consensus. When I was in college, you know, I went to college in a very conservative, uh, well, yeah, fundamentalist school, okay? And uh, it was quite dispensational. You, you know what I mean by that. So they all, everyone taught that all of this material is not for us. Matthew is not for, this part of Matthew is not for us. This was, this was given to Israel. And when she rejected Yeshua, then... Uh, it was suspended until such time as Israel will receive him. And then, then this will be for her. Only the later part of Matthew is for us. And my Greek professor, Dr. George Lawler, wrote a book while I was there called, and the title of it is, The Beatitudes Are For Us. And, and that was like, he was, he, he, he was really swimming against the current. But, uh, you know, I looked back at that. In fact, I, I looked at it uh, the other day and, and it, he signed it to me. You know, because I was one of his students. Uh, I'd forgotten about that. And, and way back then in those, uh, those years, already one of my professors was telling me there are things here in this passage of Scripture that we ought to be living out right now. It's not something for someone else or something for the future. But we, we look for a, a, a literary structure. But there's really no consensus, obviously. As Matthew records them, they consist of nine sayings all linked by the opening word, Blessed. The first eight are all cast in the third person. Blessed are those who, or blessed are those who do this, or have had this done to them, or so forth and so on. The final beatitude is put in the second person. Blessed are you. So that's the only change. 
And for that reason, some have thought that the eight, the first eight are original and the ninth one was added later. Well, I don't think so, because blessed is the, the blessed and the, uh, the word blessed and the structure is what holds them all together. If we seek a chiastic structure, the following pa- pattern emerges. So with nine of them, we have four on each side of the center. Now, again, you understand what I mean by chiasm. If you take this paragraph and turn it up, you've got a menorah. Okay. Right. You've got a Hanukkah, actually. Because you've got nine, right? Okay. So that would mean the outside candles correspond, the next two correspond until you work into the middle. And the, the shamish, the middle candle, is the all-important candle. And, of course, John gives us kind of that same picture in the book of Revelation when he said there's this candlestick, and in the middle one is, is Messiah. So those poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. And that would be parallel to the ninth one, which is those persecuted as disciples of Yeshua. I'm not saying I wouldn't fall on my sword at all for this. Just a suggestion. The next one is those who mourn, which would be parallel to those persecuted for righteousness sake. The next is those who are gentle, which is parallel to those who are peacemakers. Next, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, which would be parallel to those pure in heart. And the center one then is those who show mercy. Now, that makes sense to me because Yeshua's message is constantly centering on showing mercy. He shows mercy to the people that nobody wants to show mercy to, right? To the lepers, to the prostitute, uh, to the outcast, to the blind, so forth and so on. If this chiastic arrangement has warrant, then the major emphasis is placed upon showing mercy, and the structure itself may help define the categories. And we'll talk about that more as we go. Right. And the comments being made that you have similar structures in the Shacharit prayers uh, of the modern Siddur. You have the um, uh, Baruch Sha'amar, blessed is the one who said, and it goes blessed, 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 blessed all the way down. You have the same thing in the early, in the uh, prayers, blessings of the morning, uh, for the morning. So you're right. It's, it's a very common uh, rabbinic structure. So from the structure, we may suggest that all of these categories flow from the fountain of showing mercy. And this accords with the overall emphasis of our master's teaching and example in which the showing of mercy takes a preeminent position. Do you think that showing mercy is one of the more difficult things we do in our life? It is for me. I, I think Yeshua saw that as an essential failure amongst his colleagues. And we have the feeling that the other rabbis, there were other rabbis who did also. If you study the rabbinic literature, there are always rabbis who are talking about the need to show mercy. And part of it is just the general way of Torah. Torah is demanding. And the only way that you can, um, that you can maintain a Torah is to set yourself to real discipline. If you don't have discipline, you can't keep Torah. You have to prepare. You have to guard the commandments. You have to guard the mitzvot. Guarding them means getting ready for them in advance. You can't just be sloppy and keep Torah. In fact, the rabbis even say that someone who dresses uh, in tattered clothes is as though he, doesn't, he isn't aware of the presence of the Almighty. Because the rabbis saw that somebody who was undisciplined in one area of their life was going to be undisciplined in another area of their life. And you have to be disciplined to keep Torah. So from this life of discipline comes a kind of buck-up attitude, Right? When someone else is undisciplined, we have a tendency to say, hey, you're out together, right? Well, that's okay. I mean, Yeshua did that, right? To the, would you say that he was showing mercy in Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you snakes, you, you know. I'm not, I don't think he wasn't showing mercy. That may not be an example of, of mercy per se. It may be, it's more of an example of exhortation. But I don't think that means he was not being merciful at that point. What I'm saying is that being forthright with those who need to be uh, rebuked does is not mean that you're less than merciful. On the other hand, we have to constantly remind ourselves that there are those who are not as not down the road as far as we are in terms of practicing these things and doing these things. And it's fairly easy to be judgmental and not to have a heart of mercy. So I think to put mercy at the middle of these beatitudes is probably on the right path, even if I can't be certain that this is the way Matthew had structured it by way of uh, literary structure. All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing we need to talk about is this word blessed. Uh, the two terms used in the Tanakh for blessing are ashrei, the one that uh, would be represented here, and baruch. In the Tanakh, our Greek word in our text is always used to translate ashrei, 
and no other term. In other words, the only time our word blessed, our Greek word here, is used in the Tanakh is to translate the Hebrew word ashrei. On the other hand, baruch is never translated by makarios, our word, but most often by eulogetos or eulogeo, which means to speak good words, and sometimes by the alliterated baruch. This being the case, it is clear that the use of makarios by the gospel writers answers to ashrei and not to baruch. Moreover, ashrei is never used of God in the Tanakh but always of the blessing that comes upon a person who lives righteously. Thus, the major component of this blessing as found in our text is that it encompasses the divine action toward one who has obeyed God and acted in accordance with his prescribed commandments. You can count on God's blessing if you walk in his ways. That's the point. The vast majority of English translations have blessed, but some have opted for the word happy, and that has kind of uh, become vogue in some of the more, uh, shall we say, popular commentaries. While blessed certainly contains the idea of happy, it is much more than that, for as the Beatitudes themselves show, one may be blessed even in a state of mourning. Thus, blessing captures the idea of a conscience at peace before the Almighty, the sense that one exists under the protection of divine favor, regardless of the current circumstances. Furthermore, the perspective of some commentators that the blessing promised in the Beatitudes is eschatological. In other words, he's not saying you'll be blessed now. He says you'll be blessed sometime in the future. I think misses the fact that in the coming of Messiah, the eschaton, the last days, have invaded the present. There's a sense in which the last day has already invaded the present because the Messiah, the King, the kingdom has come in one sense. While in some sense the ultimate and final blessing awaits the age of peace and the world to come, those who walk in righteousness participate in a genuine foretaste of the eschatological blessings in the here and now. It's not just like you get the little spoonful of that 31 flavors. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, it's not like you get uh, the, the, little, the little square at Costco to see what the thing really tastes like. No, I, I'm saying you really get a meal. You really do have the blessings now. Not in their fullness, because they're mixed, right? They're mixed with death, with, with sin, with sorrow in this world. And they will not be mixed in the world to come. But we still have a genuine uh, taste of what it means to have the blessings of God in our life. Now, you say, well, boy, Tim, you, you must be living in a different place than I am. Well, I, I don't think so, but I, I think oftentimes we miss the blessing because we don't look for it and we don't recognize it. And because we don't recognize it, we don't thank God for it. And as a result, we miss it. I mean, if, if you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you know better than anything else you know in this world that God has forgiven you of your sins, that's a blessing. That is a huge blessing. And you can go to sleep with a clear conscience before the Lord. I mean, that's, that makes life, that makes a whole lot of other things fall into place. The Greek word translated poor, tochas, which has a basic meaning of uh, being economically at disadvantage, also carries an extended metaphoric sense of one being thrust on divine resources. In other words, the idea is primarily economic. The word means people that don't have material goods. But guess what? A lot of times, people who are poor are more reliant upon God than people who are rich. So the idea of this word poor came also to mean one who is, has nothing but to rely upon God. Luke simply says poor without adding in spirit, and some have therefore suggested that the opening beatitude deals primarily with those who are impoverished of material things. But this is too simplistic. It doesn't say, blessed are, the, are those of you that are impoverished. That, in other words, blessed are you that live in rags and don't have any, don't food and so forth. That's not what it's saying. That's why he adds poor in spirit. Poverty can be self-imposed, as the parable of the prodigal demonstrates. Here, the sense of poor in spirit is of those who have recognized their own spiritual bankruptcy and have therefore cast themselves entirely upon God's mercies. Poor in spirit means, in the situation that I'm in, I, don't, I, can't, I can't make this on my own. I don't have... What it takes. I don't have the spiritual strength to do what, I, what even I think God wants me to do. I can't make my way to God and expect that he will receive me on my own merits. I'm bankrupt in that regard. Further, if the chiastic structure noted above has merit, then the poor in spirit may be those who have undergone persecution because they have been willing to follow Yeshua and accept him as the Messiah. We don't probably experience this like many people born in Jewish homes do when they follow Yeshua. If you've read stories of even in our 
modern day of Jewish people who raised in Orthodox homes and what happens when they confess Yeshua. They understand what it means to be persecuted for the sake of of, of Yeshua. And the Messianic Jewish people in Israel understand that. You know, I mean, there are ongoing, there are communities of Messianic Jews who every Shabbat, every Shabbat, get rocks thrown at them, get uh, a fire started around their their meeting place, have their meeting place burnt down. It happens. They, so that when they read this, they probably read it slightly differently. The same thing would be true of, of even non-Jewish Christians who are in Muslim countries. So we don't quite understand the persecution language here in America. And if we think that we do, we probably don't. You know, we pro- most of us probably have not. Very few of us have ever been in a situation where we've been genuinely persecuted uh, for the sake of Messiah. But if, if, our, if our arrangement of the, of the lines uh, is right, then those poor in spirit are modified by those persecuted as disciples of Yeshua. Such persecution upon oneself or upon family and community members could surely bring despair. As such, they are powerless or impoverished in and of themselves to change the circumstances and must rely entirely upon God's help. It is in this full reliance upon God that those who are poor in spirit obtain the kingdom of heaven. They do not achieve entrance therein through their own strength of prowess, nor by their material wealth, nor even from the lack thereof. In other words, you don't get in because you're specially poor. And you don't get in because you're specially rich. You get in because you have come to rely upon God because you know in your spirit you're poor. They receive the present benefits of God's reign, the shalom of a conscience right before the Almighty and the comfort this brings, and await the future eschatological reign of God in which the troubles of this fallen world will be vanquished. Here then, in their opening beatitude, the emphasis is laid upon reliance upon God for entrance into the kingdom. Far from teaching a salvation through one's own righteous deeds, which, believe it or not, some commentators say that since this is for Israel and since Israel's way into the kingdom was through keeping the Torah... Yeshua is just simply telling them, do no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you have to be poor in spirit. You have to rely entirely upon God. Uh, The emphasis is laid upon reliance upon God for entrance into the kingdom. The master begins by reinforcing that membership in the kingdom of heaven is a gift from God to those who have admitted their own spiritual poverty. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second beatitude reverences those who mourn. Greek word, pentheo. But what is the cause of this mourning? Contrary to the majority of church fathers who understood this to be a mourning over one's sin, the context in parallel to Isaiah 61 further the idea of persecution begun in the first beatitude. In Isaiah 61, 2-3, the same motif of comforting those who mourn is found. To proclaim the favor... In fact, we should just start with, uh, with the first verse because um, Isaiah 61 seems to have a close parallel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Same word as poor in the Greek, in the Septuagint. He he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Sound familiar? To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over your portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. I see the repeating of mourning, and the, of joy, of righteousness, and the general sense of blessing. I think, there's, I think there's a lot of parallels to Isaiah 61 in the Beatitudes. 
So, in this passage, uh, Israel is oppressed by her enemies, her evil captors. Her cities are ruined and her people know shame and dishonor. In some, God's own are on the bottom, the wicked on the top. So mourning is heard because the righteous suffer, because the wicked prosper, because God has not yet acted to reverse the situation. The same is true for those who accept and will accept Yeshua as the promised Messiah. Though walking in righteousness, they will nonetheless be persecuted even unto death. And thus, where one would expect jubilation, mourning comes instead. But the promise of our Master is that in the midst of mourning, comfort will come. He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These words of the Master are not, then, an encouragement to mourn in order to receive the blessing. You know, this, the monastic movement in the Middle Ages uh, understood some of these verses, I think, entirely incorrectly. That, you know, if you, if you deprive yourself and if you are always in a state of mourning, you'll have more blessing than if, you're, if you smile. So you walk around with a hood over your head and your hands behind your back looking at the ground, and you hope that this is going to bring you piety and blessing. Uh, that's not what this means. The mourning comes as a result of evil perpetrated upon God's people. The blessing comes from God whose sovereign design will inevitably validate the righteous and punish the wicked. The persecution of God's people will give way to comfort in the kingdom. So the, the, the mourning comes because there really is something to mourn about. It is interesting that, that following the destruction of the temple, some of the sages called for a life of mourning. Though they recognized this could not be sustained by the masses. There were those who refrained from eating meat or drinking wine as a sign of mourning. Likewise, the sages taught that those who mourn in Zion will be privileged to rejoice in her future glory. Quote, whoever mourns for Zion will be privileged to behold her joy, as it says, rejoice with you, Jerusalem. Though the destruction of the temple awaited the time following our master's earthly ministry, the temple service had been besmirched by the self-serving desires of the priesthood. We know this because Yeshua, at least once, maybe twice, cleared the riffraff off the temple mount. It may be, therefore, that the mourning envisioned in our text is not only in regard to the persecution that Yeshua's followers would endure, but also in regard to the spiritual decline of the nation. You know, it says of Lot that he vexed his righteous soul every day. Well, it could be that there was a sense of mourning also for the former glory of the temple, which now had begun to wane even before it was destroyed. The blessing promised upon those who mourn is that they would be comforted. The agent of the passive verb... Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's passive. The agent of the passive verb is obviously God himself, who through his Messiah would bring about the promised comfort for Israel. Indeed, the Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli, may contain an early reference to the name of Messiah being comforter. Now, you have to understand, what is going on here by the rabbinical schools is that each rabbinical school uh, revered its headmaster to such an extent that they did plays on verses to say that Whatever the name of their headmaster was, that was the name of the Messiah. Okay, so take that for what it's worth. Here's a passage from Sanhedrin 98a. Rav said the world was created only on David's account. Shmuel said on Moses' account. Rabbi Yochanan said for the sake of the Messiah. What is the Messiah's name? The school of Rabbi Shilah said his name is Shiloh. You see how the school of Shiloh? Shiloh, for it is written, until Shiloh come. Genesis 49.10. The school of Rabbi Yanai said, his name is Yinon, for it is written, his name shall endure forever. Ere the sun was, his name is Yinon. The school of Rabbi Hanina maintained, his name is Hanina, for it is written, where I will not give you Hanina. And that's a, that's a play on the word. Others say his name is Menachem, the son of Hezekiah, for it is written, because the comforter, which is in the Hebrew Menachem, would uh, that would relieve my soul is far away. The rabbi said his name is the leper scholar. As it is written, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him as a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. That's a play on the word because when it says, uh, surely he has borne our griefs, it's the word for sickness. He has borne our sicknesses. That last one, of course, is the only one that is not related to a given rabbinic school. And that's Isaiah 53. And whenever you have have in the Talmud, or particularly in the Talmud, when it says the rabbis say, this is called a breitah. This is is an early saying 
which was well known, but was originally left out of the Talmud and then added. So it could be very early that Isaiah 53 was applied to Yeshua, contrary to Rashi and some of the later rabbis. So, the word of our master then is given to encourage all those who mourn, because he is the comforter, right? And he, he even tells his disciples, look, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. When I go, I will send another, another comforter, meaning what? He is the comforter. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who will comfort them? Yeshua himself will comfort them. He is the shepherd of Israel. He gives encourage to all those who mourn, who experience the pain of this fallen world, but who likewise have given themselves over to the merciful hand of God. It is his promise that for those who entrust themselves to him, he will bring comfort where mourning once existed. And such comfort is assured in that the king has come and the victory is therefore certain. Your sun will no longer set nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. So, in, in that sense, I see Yeshua in these Beatitudes telling us, how are these prophecies of the regathering of Israel and the ceasing of her mourning, how are they going to come? How is that going to happen? I th- he's saying, that that's what I've come for. That's what, I'm, that's what I've planned to do. I plan to make the way. And ultimately, of course, this comes to full fruition in Paul when Paul, through, through further revelation, realizes that all Israel will be saved how? <laughs> through the ingathering of the nations to, uh, to the Messiah. And so Paul gets to put some of the final pieces of the puzzle together as we, uh, we see it forming here in the Gospels. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.